Good morning. Welcome to Boiling Springs Baptist Church. We are glad that you've chosen to worship with us this morning, and we're, we're glad to be here together. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful day, and, and, and we're glad that all of you are here. Uh, I would invite you to join me in, as, as we reflect on these words. Um, this is a, a call to worship based from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 with the Beatitudes. And so I would invite you as we prepare our hearts this morning uh, to hear these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the downtrodden and despairing. They will rejoice in God's reign forever. Blessed are those who mourn, who are grieving. They will be comforted in God's reign forever. Blessed are the ones who seek justice and righteousness. They will find it in God's reign forever. Blessed are we when we love our neighbors and seek their needs. We will live in God's reign forever. Blessed are we all when we seek to serve others in God's name. Let us worship together, serving one another and serving our mighty God. Amen. Our hymn of praise this morning is hymn number 550. We're marching to Zion. Uh, This hymn is a lively, rhythmic, musical hymn that uh, is clearly for joyous Christians. The opening stanza strikes a happy note saying, Come we that love the Lord and let our joys be known. The hymn is inspired by a reading of the 14th chapter of Revelation. There the seer states, Then I looked and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. These Christians who have completed their pilgrimage gather about the throne and sing a new song. In stanza two, Christians have no occasion to be gloomy. Anticipating the final fulfillment of the Christian journey, children of the heavenly king may speak their joys abroad. The third and fourth stanzas stake the grounds on which Christian faith rests. There is a mighty God who is sovereign over all things, who shall bring all creation to fulfillment. Stanza three alludes to revelations picturing the city of God as having a street of gold. And stanza four recalls revelations promise that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. These stanzas were composed by Isaac Watts as a short meter hymn in 10 four-line stanzas. But gospel songwriter Robert Lowry in 1867 composed a new tune for this hymn, adding a refrain. And in so doing, he emphasized the joys of the Christian's journey through life in anticipation of reaching the final destination. So let's stand together and sing joyfully, We're Marching to Zion, number 550.
invite all of our children to come down front this morning. Good morning. How are you guys this morning and girls? Good? Good. I'm glad to see all of you. I'm not Miss Ellen. My name is Alan, if you don't know me, and I'm so glad to see all of you this morning. I have a question. Who here likes to watch television? Yeah? A couple of you like to watch TV? Okay. When I was your age, and that makes me sound old, but when I was your age, there were these things on television before Netflix, before Hulu or, or any of that other stuff, there were these things called commercials. Do you know what commercials are? No? Some of you do, maybe? There are these things called commercials. Well, I remember a commercial a few years ago, probably before any of you were born, but there was a commercial about these candies. Who knows what these candies are? They kind of look like gummy bears, and they're similar. Anybody else? Flower gummy bears. Flower gummy <laughs> They're sugar on them. They're Sour Patch Kids. Do you know what Sour Patch Kids are? No. <laughs> have any of you ever had Sour Patch Kids? Me! Yeah, you have? Good. They're, they're good stuff. Well, there was this commercial for Sour Patch Kids, and they had a slogan, okay? And their slogan was, first they're sour, then they're sweet. How many of you like sour candy? Me! <laughs> yeah? I like sour candy too. And for Sour Patch Kids, they said, first they're sour, then they're sweet, because that's what they taste like. Today, Pastor Keith is gonna be preaching from the book of Luke. And he's going to be preaching uh, what is sometimes called the Beatitudes. Um, and so let me read for you just a little brief passage from Luke chapter 6. And this is verse 20. Jesus said to his disciples, Blessed are you who are needy. God's kingdom belongs to you. Blessed are you who are hungry, you will now be satisfied. Blessed are you who are sad, you will laugh now. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they have nothing to do with you and say bad things about you, and when they treat your name as something evil. They do all of this because you are followers of Jesus. Sometimes, boys and girls, Life can be a little bit sour. Sometimes we may do things to upset our parents or upset our teachers or upset our brothers and sisters. Sometimes people may say mean things about us or they may not always be nice. And it's in those times that life can be sour. But there's good news is that even when life is sour, if we have a relationship with Jesus, Jesus can make our lives pretty sweet. Just like these Sour Patch Kids. First they're sour, and then they're sweet. And sometimes in life, even though it can be sour, even though it can be mean and bad, if we have that relationship with Jesus and you know that Jesus loves you so much, life can be pretty sweet. 
I'm going to say a prayer for us, and then I'm, let me count, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. I couldn't have planned that any better. Let me say a prayer for us, and I'm going to give each of you a bag of Sour Patch Kids, okay? Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for a new day. I'm grateful for these boys and girls who come with excitement, with joy. Lord, I pray that you help all of us here today to remember that when life gets sour, that you can make it sweet. We are grateful for your love. We are grateful for your compassion, for your compassion for us and for the poor and for the needy. And Lord, I pray that we would have that same compassion and love for other people as well. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. I'm going to begin talking as they move along. Beautiful children. The Heck Jones offering is named, of course, for Fanny Heck and Sally Bailey Jones, uh, two women who met God where he was working. They committed their lives to serving him through the missions and ministry work of Women's Missionary Union of North Carolina, but not just of North Carolina, the Southern Baptist Convention. Fanny was daughter of Colonel and Mrs. Jonathan Heck, born in Virginia in September 1862. When Fanny was three months old, the family moved to Warren County, North Carolina, and then later to Raleigh. Sally was born on January the 29th, 1869, in Greenville County, Virginia, to Dr. and Mrs. C.T. Bailey. When Sally was nine years old, her father bought the biblical recorder and moved his family to Raleigh. In 1886, Dr. Theodore Whitfield, pastor of First Baptist Church Newborn and also vice president of the Foreign Mission Board, talked with Dr. C.T. Bailey, editor of the Biblical Recorder, about the need for a new missions organization. This organization would assist and encourage missions work that was already being done in the churches. 23-year-old Fanny was to chair the organization and her friend Sally would work with her. The new organization was named Women's Central Committee of Missions and was the forerunner of WMU, Women's Missionary Union of North Carolina. Fanny also served as president of WMU Southern Baptist Convention for 15 of her 30 North Carolina years. Sally, in uh, 1915, uh, at the death of Fanny, Sally became president of WMU of North Carolina and served until um, her death. In 1924, the executive board of WMU established the Heck Jones Memorial Fund, and later, in 1947, they changed its name to the Heck Jones Offering. These funds have over the years provided for missions education. Of course, we've mentioned already one of those 
Camp Mundo Vista, uh, and our GAs went for many years there, and it is also a retreat center. Last year, there was not enough funds from the WMU Heck Jones offering to meet those responsibilities, and it is now back under the control of North Carolina Baptist, uh, not just under the WMU. But many educational needs over the years have been met through um, this particular offering. Camp Angel Tree was one of those. North, Care, North Carolina Baptist Nursing Fellowship, another. And the Military Wives Ministry is another one. There were others. An interesting thing that I read, written by Rosalie Hunt, with the history of WMU Southern Baptist Convention talked about Fanny. She described Fanny and her four siblings as uh, a family where devotions was the first thing in the morning from Luke 2 on Christmas Day, family prayer time that enjoyed a special breakfast that morning, including cinnamon rolls, and they attended the Christmas service at church, followed by a turkey raised on the family's farm, the traditional carriage ride to see the lights in Raleigh, as the homes have, over the years, continued to have such beautiful decorations. But she mentioned that Fanny was a fun teacher that she not only worked with girls in Sunday school and with the Vacation Bible School, but that Fanny taught seminary students there in Raleigh. And she told of a practical joke that Fanny played on her seminary students one year. She made homemade chocolates. And at the center of those chocolates, she put pepper. Fanny was a beautiful debutante. She was the belle of the ball. She chose to do missions work. She was not only a fixer of the dolls of her younger sister, but of broken toys of her brother Charles. But this is the part that amazes me. Fanny was a crack shot with any gun that was put in her hands. Now, some of the benefits that happen available to us in our world today, we can find those through www.wmunc.org backslash Bible studies, and Bible studies is hyphenated. They have a lending library of 250 studies for individuals or groups but also free resources that come through the website, e-news, Facebook, printed materials, and regional training materials. In-gathering is next Sunday. Our goal is $3,000. I'd love for us to go over that. Pray about what God wants you to do and give next Sunday. We appreciate all that has been done this past year from the Missions Committee and we anticipate greater things. Have a great day.
Our next hymn is number 489, The Potter's Hand. And um, just like anybody, hymnal publishers try to save money, then it makes it more difficult for us sometimes to read the hymn. So I just want to give you a little instruction. So we'll sing the first stanza, the first two lines, and half of the third line, and then we'll go back and sing the st second stanza on the first two lines and the second half of the third line. Then we'll sing to the end. When we get to the bottom of the second page, we'll sing the second page one more time. Just follow me. You'll know what to do. 489. Please stand if you are able and join and sing. <coughs> As we pray, remember Dolores White, who is awaiting hip surgery. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would transform us, that we would have an awakening, that you would take us, mold us, use us, and fill us. Call us, guide us, lead us, and walk beside us. Help us to place our lives in your hands. You are the potter, we are the clay. Help us to not only give our lives, but to give of what we have financially so that your kingdom may come. In Jesus' name, amen.
thank the choir for reminding us of the importance of prayer in the life of a Christian. Before our text today, before I read in just a moment, we find Jesus on the mountain. And there on the mountain, he spends the night in prayer. And his, he's there with his disciples. And in the morning, he calls. After spending the night in prayer, he calls the 12 disciples. And just before our reading today, you can go back just a few verses and find Jesus uh, calling those disciples after his night in prayer. This reminds us, the song and the scripture that I just referenced reminds us of the importance of prayer in the life of the identity of a believer in Jesus Christ. Just a moment, I'm going to read scripture and then following the reading of the scripture, Lindy is going to sing a song some of you are familiar with. If you listen to Christian radio or even pop radio, you've heard the song by Lauren Daigle called You Say. And it reminds us that in all the voices that we hear in our society today, through media and through just the, the ways that we hear things, through our phones and tablets and, and all the ways we hear from the world, uh, it reminds us the one voice that matters most of all that we should be listening to, the one that reminds us that we are made in the image of God, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's the voice that we should be listening to above all the voices that clamor for our time and our attention. And I love, there's one line in the song I want to read uh, before I read scripture. It says, in you I find my worth, in you I find my identity. But we look forward to hearing that. But if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. This scripture will be on the screen. You have your pew Bible there. And uh, you'll see why I'm reading it from the floor here this morning in just a moment. But Luke 6, beginning at verse 17 through verse 26. He came down with them, meaning Jesus. He came down off the mountain with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And let me stop right here. We have in Luke a message of Jesus that's for all people, Jews and Gentiles. We have Judea and Jerusalem who are, that are Jewish cities, municipalities. And we have Tyre and Sidon, which are heavily Gentile. And so that's significant to our text this morning. They had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for the power came out from him and healed all of them. Right now, what we have is Jesus Christ superstar. He is at the height of his ministry. And so he looks not at the masses that are surrounding him, but at his disciples. And he said these words, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and defame you on the count of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. And woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. May God add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. Lindy. Fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough 
I believe 
Amen. Thank you so much, Lindy. A lot of the preachers on TV portray a call to discipleship as a call to material blessings, to healing, and to prosperity. If you'll just give a seed faith gift, then the Lord will provide you with healing and prosperity, and you'll have everything you ever wanted. And you'll be able to give more, that's what they say. This last Wednesday, uh, we had a brief conversation about this near the end of our Bible study at 11 a.m. And uh, Oral Roberts was mentioned. Many of you, maybe years ago, some referenced in our Bible study, they watched Oral Roberts and they saw, you know, his challenge to give this seed faith gift and then they would see people miraculously healed. And then one family shared with me on Wednesday, they called and to see if there, somebody in their family could come and receive this healing. And they told them the details of the situation and they said, no, absolutely not. Do not bring them, you know, to, but anyway, I'll get sidetracked on that. But um, many throughout decades and, and still to this present day portray uh, this message of health and wealth, we know it, we call it the prosperity gospel. If you will just be faithful enough, if you will just give enough, God will bless you beyond wildest measure and you will have everything that you've ever wanted, including really good health. Last May, I don't know um, how many of you heard of this, but Jesse Duplantis asking for a jet. Does any of you, any of you remember hearing this, the, the TV evangelist? And um, he said, Jesus, the light of the world, would not be uh, comfortable with 30 inches of leg room and, um, and being patted down by the TSA. I don't know if, any of you, if, you, if you remember hearing that. And so in order for him to travel and spread the gospel more, he needed his listeners to give about $54 million to get a private jet, but not just a private jet, a Falcon 7X that would go almost uh, as fast as the speed barrier, had all kind of technology, Bluetooth technology, and had an in-flight shower. I don't know if you heard that uh, or not. But um, he was asking, again, his listeners to give this $54 million. And what he said was, he said, if Jesus were alive today, he would not be riding on a donkey, he would be in an airplane preaching the gospel. That was what he said. Jesus' sermon today in Luke, you're like, where are you going with this, Keith? Um, Jesus' sermon today in Luke does not qualify as anything that would be condoned or spoken of as a health and wealth gospel. It's the last thing from such. It does reference the word blessed, but this sermon is a call to a radical way of discipleship that turns some ways that we've always known things upside down. Jesus' message with the Sermon on the Mount in both Matthew and Luke are what we call countercultural. You kind of have to read it again, and then you read it again, and then you read it again, and you're like, what exactly is he saying here? I would think most in the room have lived long enough to know that wealth does not bring happiness. I think we've lived long enough to know, too, that we don't want to be poor. We understand that wealth you know, won't give us everything we want, but at the same time, we don't want to be in that classification as poor. If I ask you to choose between being poor, sad, hungry, and hated, or being rich, well-fed, happy, and loved, your choice would be obvious this morning. I know exactly what you would choose. Growing up, I remember my dad saying these words. He said, I don't want to be rich. I just want a little bit more. Some of you may have heard your parents say something like that, or you may have said something like that. Luke's sermon on the plane here, not the Falcon 7X, but the land, geographical plane, 
uh, here is often overshadowed by the longer and more developed Sermon on the Mount that Alan referred to in his children's sermon this morning. Luke develops this Sermon on the Plain uh, into about 30, uh, let's see, 32 verses compared to Matthew's 107 verses. The essence of each sermon in Matthew and in Luke was probably preached by many times by Jesus in his earthly ministry. It's a lot of the same message. Um, it's kind of like the preacher that might travel. There are certain things that he wants to emphasize over, he or she emphasize over and over again in their message. And we think, and I believe Jesus did that here with the, both what we have in Matthew and the message that we have here in Luke as well. But the setting is a flurry of activity. We clearly read that. Jesus has come down off of the mountain uh, with his disciples and now he's chosen 12. And there are people around, around him everywhere. We don't know if it's hundreds, if it's thousands, but they've come from Jerusalem and Judea and both from Tyre and Sidon as well. Both Jews and Gentiles are surrounding him. The crowd is coming upon him. And the scripture tells us people are coming up to him and touching him and being healed. The power is going out from him. And this is a special time in the life of Jesus and a special time for the hundreds and the thousands of people that are now gathered around Jesus. My mind goes back to something this week as I was thinking about this setting, what it must have been like. And I'm going to go back in time and not talk about present day, but back in 1968, some of you remember it, I wasn't, I wasn't here yet, but 1968, I've heard about it, Robert F. Kennedy was then the Attorney General and he was running for President of the United States. And aides would say that as he stumped and as he went from place to place, the crowds would just reach for him. And they remember seeing and helping, his, helping him heal his hands after some of these speaking engagements because the crowds were just pulling at him and were just, you know, wanted to touch him. And he was reaching for others and others would reach for him. And they said his hands were actually bloody and the, the shirt collars were actually tattered because of the crowd reaching for him and pulling from him. Everywhere that RFK went, he was greeted by a small sea of outstretched hands. Jesus today in this text is at the height of his popularity among the masses. As I said earlier, we currently have Jesus Christ superstar. People were simply touching him and being healed. At this day, at this time, the people were thinking what we now know, Jesus was not the ruler that the people then were wanting to see in him, but yet that's where they were in their minds today. They're thinking the Messiah is finally here. We can, uh, we can get out from under Roman rule. And Jesus could not have been more popular at this time here in this passage. Uh, in Jesus' day, everyone wanted healing and everyone wanted a better life. Everyone wanted a piece of the pie. Everyone wanted a better tomorrow because their current situation was not that good. Many were healed, but not all. Many were changed on this day and around this time, but not all. Whatever the kingdom of God is for this present time, it is not a ticket to a charmed life. And Jesus is about to remind them of that, in which every believer will be kept free from pain and disease and hardships and financial problems. Maybe that is why right in the middle of all this hubbub, right in the middle of all this excitement and, and ex, uh, hubbub, Jesus turns to his disciples and he begins to speak a series of beatitudes, a series of blessings that point to a lifestyle and to a mindset completely at odds with those who have come to seek him out. His message is a little upside down. His message is a little countercultural, and his message that the words that he's about to say were a little hard to hear, both for the people of that day and I would propose for the church today as well. 
It's hard to imagine someone just getting elected president or to some high office, and they're riding on the hopes and the dreams and the expectations of those that have put them there, and then they stand up for their victory speech, and they say something that could be like this. But you know, I want to congratulate the unemployed in the nation. Someday in heaven, you'll have it better. I want to reach out to the malnourished children of our land and bless you for your hunger. And I want to say a word to the hated masses, to the minorities and others who feel the sting of racism. Someday you'll have your reward. We cannot imagine such a thing. A victory is a time to whoop it up. A victory is a time to cash in on all the hopes and the dreams of the people that have voted for you thinking you're going to lead them to a better tomorrow. To tell the people you've placed their hopes in, you have what it takes and you will not let them down. And there'll be a brighter day for all. Just follow me and you'll see in the coming days. I think we've heard something like that before, right? But not Jesus. He uses this moment when everyone is looking at him and expecting the world of him and he pulls his disciples in. Now the crowd of throngs of people are around, but he pulls his disciples in. The text very clearly says that. And he says that the poor and the hungry and the sorrowful and the hated are better off than the rich and the satisfied and the happy and the well-liked. In saying all this, Jesus is at once describing a future reality of the kingdom of God and tracing out for us the shape of our present lives right now. There's something raw. There's something terse about Jesus' message here. Again, he's at the height of his popularity. People are just thronging to hear what he has to say. People are being healed left and right. It says all who touched him were healed. I don't know exactly what that means other than what it says. It says that everybody was touching him and was being healed. And so there's a great and excitement. It's, I mean, it's, it's incredible what's happening. And yet Jesus takes that moment. He pulls his disciples in and he says something very contrary to what's going on in the moment. Jesus' message is a message not for the crowd, but a message for those who have made a commitment to follow him, his disciples. And it's a message for you and for me this morning as well. Central to the sermon, again, are four blessings or four uh, beatitudes. And then he flips it around as well to four corresponding curses or woes. If you have your Bibles out, you may want to take a look at that again. I... Um, I had a slide, but it didn't work out to put all the scriptures on one page. But what I have here, and if you'll look or think about what was read or look at your Bible, verse 20, it says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. And verse 24, Jesus flips it. He says, but woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. In verse 21, he says, blessed are you now who are, who are hungry now for you will be filled. And then in verse uh, 24, 25, he flips it. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Then he does the same thing with, in reference to those who weep. Blessed are you who's, who weep now, for you will laugh. And then he flips it around. He said, woe to you or curse to you to those who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. What we have here is once again a theme of discipleship. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is all of this excitement that surrounds us right now, let me tell you what it looks like to be a true follower of me and what the kingdom of God looks like and should be looking like in our lives right now and church, what the kingdom of God should be looking like for you and for me today. Wholehearted identity with Christ doesn't look like the material riches and the Falcon X, 7X, that Jesse Duplantis spoke of or that I referenced earlier. 
But being a disciple identifies us with the poor and with the hungry, both physically and spiritually. It identifies us with the weak. It identifies us with the grieving. I think of another text where Jesus says, I have come to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. There's an author I came across this week. His name was Scott Hosey. I had not heard of him prior to this week. But he had to say this about this text and about really the Beatitudes, whether you're looking at Matthew or Luke. And I loved what he had to say. He said, if we could take all the personality traits of what's listed in the Beatitudes and put them into one person, if we put them into one, into one man, and if we would call him Mr. Beatitude, let us ask ourselves the question, what would Mr. Beatitude look like? Explore this with me. Mr. Beatitude would be considerably kind, a bit shy, and shunning the limelight. He would always downplay his own actions. He would be a person quick to lend a hand to anyone in need. He would be deeply saddened when he hears the news stories spill off on the news and then he sees the smiling face of the, of the, the, the newscaster saying, uh, see you next time, have a good night. There'd be something a little unsettling about all of this. He would be deeply saddened when he hears news stories about Gulf Coast or the oil spill off the Gulf Coast or starving children in Sudan. He would not be the, again, the TV news personality that says, I'll see you next time, have a good night. Mr. Beatitude would be something like this, a person who was transparently religious, transparently religious, a person whose heart was so centered on God that most everything he did would come off looking like an offering. This would be a man who would seem perpetually restless and dissatisfied with lots of life's facets. It's this idea that we want to do good, we want to do good, but he would be upset the fact that we're not doing good. Things are still the way that they are. What else can we do? He would be someone who consistently gave money to worthy causes. Mr. Beatitude would be someone who volunteered to clean up the highways, maybe who pitched in on programs to aid the homeless, and who talked at dinner parties uh, may turn to uh, uh, issues, uh, crisis, uh, crisis issues and not so much the idle chit-chat that goes on uh, at, at cocktail parties. In short, Mr. Beatitude might not always be a barrel of laughs. There would be most oftentimes a serious look on his face, maybe a tear in his eye because of the things that he's hearing and that he's seeing in the world that he now is relating to. Some would sneer at him as someone who was naively out to save the world, this Mr. Beatitude. He might even be a troublemaker and a nuisance. He's always hungry and thirsting for something better for others. And it's quite possible that among people anyway, Mr. Beatitude would be ridiculed as we know the prophets were and as we know Jesus was, as he referenced in the passage that we read today. What would Mr. Beatitude be known for today in our society? Church, this is a tough message from Jesus. There's no way we can fully dissect it all in a brief sermon on a Sunday morning. Our men and others in the church over the years have spent some time dissecting and looking at Matthew's account of the Beatitudes. But at the height of Jesus' popularity, he's taking discipleship far beyond a simple follow me. And I propose to you this morning that what the church, what the church and what the world needs to see are not, is not 
uh, half-hearted status quo Christians, but wholehearted, committed followers of Jesus Christ. And I ask you, church, this morning, does that description describe you and describe me as a wholehearted, committed follower of Jesus Christ? Is that description a part of our identity? Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for your love for us. I'm thankful that, as Lindy reminded us in the song, of all the voices, your voice reminds us who we are. It's in your voice, it's in your life, in your message that we find our worth, that we find our identity. Lord, I'm afraid, and and, uh, as we think about church today, church universal, in the many of our churches we have are filled with people who just being, saying in an, a verbal commitment to Christ is a good thing, saying that, yeah, I'm a Christian is, is a good thing and my parents are and those around me are. But Lord, help us this morning to ask ourselves very personally, how is our walk with you? Are we fully in? Are we, both, are we in with both feet? Or do we have one foot in the world and one foot trying to follow you? Lord, teach us more about what wholehearted commitment looks like to you. There was something about your message that appealed to the masses, but when they got down to the thick of it, when they got down to the meat of it, it was tough to stomach. It was tough to stomach for those closest to you, and oftentimes today when we find ourselves really getting in to your message and your challenge for us as disciples and as people who want to follow you, it is a tough message. But God, we know that your Holy Spirit, we know that you will give us the strength to carry it out. And Father, help us today to evaluate our own life and our own commitment to you and help it to be fully committed and wholehearted. I ask this prayer in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna stand and sing a hymn, Lord, I wanna be a Christian. And if I remember this right, this speaks to, Lord, I wanna be a Christian in reference to your love. I wanna be a Christian in reference to, I wanna be holy. And uh, I wanna be identified as a follower of Jesus Christ. Most of you in here this morning have given your life to Christ. You've done that at a young age, or maybe you did that as a young adult. But there may be some in here today that have never placed your hope and commitment in Christ, and the invitation is always open every Sunday. I would love more than anything to talk with you about that. But maybe over the years, you've just settled for half-hearted status quo Christianity. And today, you need to recommit to follow Christ and jump in with both feet. Let's stand and let these words speak to you And may the Spirit speak to you as well as we sing together, Lord, I want to be a Christian, hymn number 507. Let's stand and sing together.
last verse. I want to be more like Jesus in my heart. I want my identity to look more like the one whom I confess to follow. My hope and prayer is that we will be the presence of Christ as we leave this place today in our community and within our world. And let's close now with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the hope that we have in a relationship with you. Father, forgive us for when our walk has been half-hearted. And Lord, teach us more about what full commitment, wholehearted commitment to you will look like as we move forward. We love you, Lord. Bless us now as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen.